We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Today's guest is Walter Cha, the insightful, imaginative, and engaging senior critic for the Ontario-based web journal FilmFreakCentral.net since 1999. There are at least three collections of reviews and essays by the incredibly prolific Walter Cha available to discover, as well as a monograph for the brilliant 1988 feature Miracle Mile, which gave him the opportunity to record commentary tracks for that Blu-ray release, as well as Cherry 2000. Currently working on the final touches of his book on director Walter Hill, which will hopefully be released in the fall and contains words by James Elroy, Larry Gross, and Edgar Wright, and art by Egyptian artist Ganzir. In addition to bylines in the LA Weekly, New York Post, Vulture, Decider, and New York Times, Walter spent a few years as VP of Operations at the Alamo Drafthouse in Denver and 15 years teaching film at the graduate and postgraduate levels at the University of Denver. Also busily working on a handful of other exciting projects he's unable to discuss in public just yet, Walter lives with his wife and two children in Denver. Supportive, funny, whip-smart, and friendly, it's a true honor to welcome Walter Cha to Watch with Jen. So Walter, thank you so much for coming back. It's always a pleasure to see you and speak to you. So how are you doing and how have you continued adapting to the ongoing pandemic? Oh, thanks so much for having me back. Um, I, I don't I don't know that I've adapted. I'm in full-on um, <laughs> d- 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 denial. Is that an yes. adaptation? Probably. To uh, sort of plug our upcoming chat. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I'm doing, honestly. I'm kind of excited for warm weather to come back uh, so I can sit outside more. You know, yeah. I, I kind of miss that. I think that was a really valuable part of the early part of the pandemic. I could still sit outside on the porch or something and read or write. Or, and that, that was... I'm realizing now a big part of my my uh, mental health regimen, but you know, for the most part, just sort of doing stuff like this with friends, you know, like yourself yeah, to say, hey, hey, it's good to see your face. It's good to be um, talking about something that's really diverting for a yes. little while. Uh, you know, watching movies has always been that for me, and so this is just a further extension of that. How about you? How how, how are you adapting and 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 dealing? 
I am doing well. Yeah. I mean, dealing with some stress, we talked off air, but I think this is really important to speak with friends and talk about movies. And the great thing is, like you said, movies help get your mind off of it, but they also kind of make you think more about your own situation. Like I know Wonder Boys is a movie that hits us both on a personal level. So we're going to be talking about that later. So I think it's it's healthy and it's a nice way to see everybody and still stay kind of in the mental state of before times, even though we're not really there. But yeah, I'm just glad to have you back. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's really great to be able to talk about movies, especially, I think, about writing. Uh, yes. Because writing is another way I think both of us try to adapt 100%. to uh, the world. <laughs> and, and, you know, even before the world was quite so messed up i think they were sort of at least speaking for me messed up in my mind mm-hmm. so you know the writing was always a way for me to contextualize it's almost like list making yeah way, right you kind of enumerate your grievances and past uh um, hurts that are dredged up mm-hmm. for me the catalyst of art you know and so um you know, I think we've both probably been asked why we're not create creators in different ways, like novelists or screenwriters mm-hmm. or whatever. My answer has always been, it's like, I, I'm not that kind of creator. I only ever respond. It's like my, my sense of humor is not, I could never be a stand-up comic, but no, I'm really good at responding <laughs> to people and conversations. I'm, I'm quick with a rejoinder. And I yeah. think maybe that's the way that, that, that I approach the writing as well. But yeah, I think this is a, it's ideal, you know. We I, we 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 hit back and forth a lot of different ideas for our conversation today. Yeah, we we, we you know, things that maybe weren't quite right for the mood or quite right yeah. in terms of content, right? And then um, finally, after a couple of months of just sort of trying to f- figure it out, I think we finally landed on something that both made us feel really good to yeah. to watch and to research, right? Absolutely. And we can kind of put a pin in some of those other ideas because they were also really good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe not right now, for right. sure. Right, right, for sure. Well, you've been working with the Denver Public Library hosting virtual weekly movie discussions of some of cinema's most beloved titles with a veritable who's who of distinguished guests actors, authors, filmmakers, and beyond, people like Ryan Johnson, Edgar Wright, Allison Anders, Natasha Leone, and James Elroy. For those who've been unable to attend, the library has been kind enough to upload these video chats to YouTube, and it's such a gift to film lovers during the pandemic. What have been some of your favorite discussions so far, and what can people expect from these Saturday talks in the future? Well, Thanks for mentioning that. That's been one of those things, right? That that just yeah. sort of came about as a result of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. when when you know I can't I can't one hundred percent be mad at the pandemic just because there's like some stuff like this program where Denver is usually a flyover state, even though we have a hub for an airport. In terms of like talent <laughs> and stuff, you know, it's difficult yeah. to get people to come into Denver to do things, especially guys like. Edgar Wright in the middle of post-production of, of, of last night in Soho. There's no way he's going to fly in from England no. to do one hour on a Saturday morning for us, you know, so <laughs> to, to, to have zoom in this sort of program that the Denver library put together to have a Saturday matinee discussion every Saturday um, uh, is, is, is really great for 
my mental health personally and, and you know just to, to be able to talk about these things with these artists and these friends of that i admire and i i guess i really love like the the the, the week of the capital incursion mm-hmm. um we had guillermo del toro that saturday and he has a lot of insight obviously about the spanish civil war and he has a lot of insight about you, oh, you know wow. the yeah. the way that societies can be fractured and how they heal if they do heal and gave me some good um metaphors to to begin to sort of uh, assimilate that that yeah. act and the the this the deep divisions in our culture um having ryan johnson on to talk about under the skin we he uh, mentioned his theory that he thought the opening of under the skin the sequence of 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 images and the music and the noise uh was a, a an homage to wagner's ring trilogy the way that it was introduced Ooh. with yeah it was amazing it was a really amazing thing and it it um during the course of our conversation i reminded him that in birth the other uh, another jonathan glazer film not the other and other uh, jonathan glazer film uh, N- N- nicole kidman comes to the idea that her her this little boy might be her husband yeah. reincarnate uh, at the beginning of the ring trilogy that very piece of music that ryan was talking about maybe opening under the skin so there's something more there than just sort of Ooh, that is a great observation oh it was amazing yeah. it was amazing and i think that's what's incredible like and i always love you know like today included to be the least accomplished of uh, you know in, in the room and just be able to oh, listen to, <laughs> to um, someone that i really admire and like and is as passionate and needy needful of films as I am yeah, and more. And uh, to be able to do that has been really great. And, you know, uh, coming up, James Elroy is coming in March. N- 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 Natasha Leone, as you mentioned, is coming to do uh, The Seventh Seal, which is just freaking awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, we uh, Pat, uh, Patton Oswalt is coming in April. Uh, he wants to do City of Fear. Is it called City of I don't remember. No, City of Fear. I Darn it. It's a 1960 movie uh, okay. by, by Moxie. Really interesting horror film, uh, Christopher Lee. Uh, he's coming in April to do that with me. And so it's been really great. You know, Ileana Douglas yeah. is on board. Uh, oh, I Lee love Arnold. her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just amazing, amazing. And I've been very humbled by their willingness to come help out the Denver Library just to sort of raise the profile of some of these programs that they're providing for, for, for people in quarantine. You know, yeah, that's perfect. Cool thing. Yes. Well, your book on Miracle Mile is one that fans can order autographed by you and Matt Zollerzeitz's cool online MZS World Store, which stocks new and used books about the arts. It's in such demand that almost as soon as you sign them and Matt gets them back in stock, it repeatedly sells out. I have my copy, which I can't wait to dive into. But another exciting piece of news is discovering that your upcoming book, your opus on Walter (laughs) Hill, is set to be not only sold in Matt's store, but published by his MZS Press as well. What can you tell us about that book? And is there anything else you're working on professionally that you'd like to share? Oh, well, that book is, is it's going to be a doorstop. It's like over 400 pages long with stills and everything. Oh, wow. um, Matt's, a, Matt's an angel to, to want to publish it. It's gone through a couple of publishers who uh, have wanted this or that. And Matt's the first one that said, I like it the way that it is. Let's go. And so oh, cool. I'm really grateful. Yeah. Um, J- James Elroy did do the introduction for it. Um, 
you know, I, I worked with Hill a little bit. Larry Gross has written something for it. Edgar Wright wrote something for it. But mainly it's just me going on at length about, as I tend to do, about uh, about the films of Walter Hill, uh, including the, his, his screenplays. And so I'm excited. You know, I'm excited yeah. to see, see the light of day finally. And uh, I don't know, professionally, Jen, I don't know. Um, just writing or covering stuff and trying to keep uh, keep it going, you know, try, trying to keep cool. um whatever momentum there is sort of flowing along. Well, you're definitely coming back when the book comes out and we'll do an episode on <laughs> Hill and you can educate me and everyone. So I can't it's a wait date. I don't that. know about educating you about anything, but yeah, it's a date. It's oh, a date. can't wait. <laughs> you're one of my very favorite film writers. And I always enjoy seeing you discussing the craft of writing from your struggles to the music you're listening to that day or your triumphs. I thought your idea to focus on films about writers was a very good one. I know I'm especially drawn to movies about artists, whether that's musicians, painters, or storytellers, because of their drive to be creative, even in a world where that impulse is threatened by a lot of things, from money to health to circumstance. What do you tend to gravitate to in these movies? And what is it about artists and writers in particular that you think makes for such compelling films? Well, you know, I think a lot of the, I think the most unbecoming parts of my personality uh, revolve around sort of feeling sorry for myself a little bit, if I want to be completely honest, you know, I kind of wallow in self-pity sometimes like, Oh, why? why?" We all do. (laughs) You know, and um, it, I'm not proud of it. I, I, I fight against it, of course. You know, it is yeah. not the way that I want to be. But if I'm being completely transparent with a good friend, uh, you know, that's that's true of me. I, I do spend more time than I should not being grateful and not being in the mm-hmm. moment. But I think films like this really speak to that part of me that's sort of Byronic, the the part that sort of stands on that hill, right? The the, yeah. painting, the wanderers that called where where it's just an you know a poet with a walking stick and a and a and a tails on his jacket looking out over this sort of fog shrouded valley um, mm-hmm. by himself, alone, contemplating big ideas and why why can't people understand me and why aren't I appreciated <laughs> in my time and um, you know, and usually that kind of is at war with my self-loathing. And so these the these movies when they do it right, when they really capture, I think, for me anyway, when it, when it rings true to me, when they capture these writers who are um, a little bit self-loathing and full mm-hmm. of doubt and depressed, and maybe there's other mental illness issues that they're working with, and we will yeah. talk about that when we talk about some of these films and others that we sort of picked and, and you know, d- discarded for time or for, for whatever. But yeah. um, the, there, the, there's always this awareness, I think, of differentness. Mm-hmm. And... And if, if there's a, you know, a pocket psychological cause for, for my sadness and depression and self-loathing, it's, it's this kind of being raised with this idea of differentness. And I wonder, you know, the, the, these films make me wonder if there isn't sort of a commonality among writers that I admire that we're inspired to do this because we feel different or we are separated um, and yeah. feel apart. Right. At odds from, yeah. You know, and we, yes, exactly. And, and, and Walter Hill, you know, he, he had asthma when he was a kid and he, he did, he missed a lot of school. He spent mm-hmm. a lot of time alone in his room reading comic books and stuff. And, you know, he, he's a real hail, hearty, all American dude, but his upbringing was a little lonesome. And I think yeah. he felt apart and alone and, and maybe even afraid because of his health. And there just seems to be a thread, you know, J- James Elroy, who I consider a friend and is 
you know, really lovely man. He um, spent time homeless and, and in and out of jail and in and out of addiction. And there's this real sense of separateness. His mother was murdered. And, oh, you know, I, I wonder if there wasn't that commonality. And so these movies all to one extent or another that we, we've chosen today address some more explicitly than others, um, that feeling of outsideness and being uh, separate and strange it, 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 in your own head, even if not obviously outside of it. I think there's something to that. That might be why Martin Scorsese, actually, I know it is, was such a, I jokingly call him like the patron saint of sick kid <laughs> film buffs everywhere because he had very bad asthma, like to the point where even laughing too hard was a risk and so stayed in or watched movies or was taken to movies. And I remember hearing that when I was discovering his stuff and I was dealing with my own medical issues that like I couldn't run and do that kind of thing. And yeah, I, I loved seeing him make sense of that and also just look at the world kind of holding it at an arm's length because you are a little bit more sheltered in some of these respects. So I think there's something to that. That's interesting. I didn't know that about Walter Hill. So fascinating well, analysis. Well, yeah. You know, I, I think it forces one to become an observer and yeah. an anthropologist at a really early age of, of others and others' interactions, the ones that you're jealous of or the ones that mm -hmm. you wish to become part of. You know, for me, it wasn't a health issue so much as it was you know, just being Chinese in an all-white area and oh, not yeah. speaking English until I was, I was in elementary school. And so um, it really forced me to become an observer and mm -hmm. watching and listening really carefully and, and trying to now – uh, become a part of a culture to which I obviously, you know, don't, don't belong, you know, in a, in a physical sense, but um, can, can I mimic the language and can I uh, use it yeah. or the culture for particularly, I, I learned really early on that if I had seen a movie that was a big popular thing that people were talking about, I instantly had a conversation thing to yep. talk about. Right. So even now it's hard for me to admit that I have not seen something that that's big, you know, I'm, I've gotten more comfortable with it, but you know, it's, I still have this moment where I'm like, Oh, I should have seen that because then I could have this conversation with a person who actually wants to talk to me. Oh, and, and so th yeah. There's this sort of, right. And, yeah. and, and, and I think that apartness and that essential loneliness, um, it, it is is essential, perhaps, to at least the writers that I like. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like I can I can read it when I read, even if they're not talking about it, right? You know, yeah. I feel like that when I read your work. Um, you know, yeah, that that you. I get it. I, I hear mm -hmm. you, and <laughs> it isn't. You don't have to always be talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. I, I hope you don't. I, you know, I, I talk about it way too much, but um, <laughs> but but I think it's there. It's 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 embedded in the writing. If there's a certain kind of wisdom and pain that's mm -hmm. associated with it that and there's all sorts of different kinds of wisdom and pain i get it this kind is the kind that i understand so watching yeah. scorsese films or hill films those, those films um or even filmed by jane campion and jillian yes. armstrong I, I feel like i hear something here charlie charlie kaufman my god i just like you know i feel like i should get royalties every time he writes something um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, there's something that's a unifying thread, and that's really the beauty and magic of writing, isn't it? That you can find something that's 150 years old, you know, or, or yeah. you can find le le letters that a 25-year-old Keats wrote to Fanny Braun, and I'm mm -hmm. like, I know what he's feeling. I felt this before. Yeah, it's you have a friend, 
yeah. somehow. This you know, <laughs> 25-year-old romanticist long dead um, has spoken to you uh, truly. I think that's the magic and the sublimity of, of, of writing or art of any kind, but writing. Yeah, sensing a kindred spirit, <laughs> not Indeed. feeling as alone. Yes. Well, you've selected five outstanding titles, My Brilliant Career, The Whole Wide World, Wonder Boys, Adaptation, and Bright Star to discuss today. And while obviously you can reference any film at any time, since themes, characterizations, and plot lines are sure to overlap, I thought it might be best to go through them chronologically, uh, one by one, starting with Australian director Gillian Armstrong's assured, influential feature filmmaking debut, the 1979 movie, My Brilliant Career, starring Judy Davis and Sam Neill, and based on the 1901 novel by Miles Franklin. Set in rural late 19th century Australia, it follows Davis's headstrong young woman as she tries to reconcile a future with limited financial and romantic prospects and her own great desire to be in the arts. Unsure whether she wants to be an artist, a musician, or a writer, all she knows is she's destined for a creative life beyond the countryside of Australia. But as Armstrong's film carries on, we realize it's her words as a budding author that will lead her there. I think this is a gorgeously made sensitive film that really captures the feeling that I think most artists share of wanting to both observe and take part, but also analyze the world as we see it. I loved Judy Davis and Sam Neill and feel like this is a terrific reminder that the 70s Australian new wave had a sensitive romantic and feminine side. So when you think of it, you usually think of like Mad Max or Breaker Morant. So what did you think of my brilliant career, Walter? Gosh, I adore this film, you know, and we, 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 we talked about also doing Angel at My Table, the, the Jane Campion flick. And, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, the, the, those two movies sort of occupy a similar orbit in my mind. The, the protagonists seem to be sort of similar to me. They're, they're non-traditionally beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, and I think that that's indicated in both films by like a really wild sort of frizzy mane of hair. And, yes. but, 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 but also visually that, that, that strikes me as a, as wild and and uncontainable and free. Mm-hmm. And there's so much discourse now about identity around hair and natural hair versus, you know, socially yeah. acceptable. There, there's something about Judy Davis's hair in my brilliant career that I'm obsessed with. The more that I watch, <laughs> every time I go, go back to that film, it's like, it's untamable. The very first image of the film, she's writing the, 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 the first words to what will be her book her her her, her masterpiece yes. she hopes right yeah and and it says you know essentially in in response to all the many off, uh, requests i've decided to set down this uh, chronicle <laughs> of my career and she thinks about it she thinks about it she says my brilliant career and mm-hmm. and it it um and, and she's framed in in this door frame of this house in the middle of the outback uh, in, in new south wales and she's uh I don't know the 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 geography of Australia. That's probably not the outback, but she. Uh, um, uh, but her hair is wild and it's untrammeled, and, and she turns at one one point and it's like huge. It's it's everywhere. Then then a sandstorm whips up and you know, the windows are banging. But she's 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 like kind of consumed by her writing. And for me, my God, you know, there's something so primal and romantic 
yes. about about that and Judy Davis. Incredible. Gosh darn it, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> she, she is just amazing. Um, she 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 rem, reminds me a lot of Jean Arthur in terms oh, of that's um, an, yeah I can see energy yep. yeah an just like she's spirit yeah yes indomitable spirit and there's always mm-hmm. you know so many of Jean Arthur's plots are about her being you know people trying to force her into a role that she doesn't want to be in yeah um, you know usually a domestic role but but you know there, there there's uh. Gosh, I'm, I'm very elderly. I can't remember all the titles, but there, 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 there's one where she gets fired from a job as a newspaper reporter. She gets fired a lot mm-hmm. in her movie, Jean Arthur. And she she sounds, does, yeah. Yeah, and she just doesn't care. Mm-mm. You know what I mean? She's like, ah, whatever. You know, I, I'll <laughs> quit before they get fired. Um, and, and Judy Davis, for me, has a lot of that same kind of indomitable pluck. She's always herself in her films. You know, mm-hmm. e, e, you know, e, e, even in like Barton Fink, when she shows up very briefly as you know, the Faulkner character's mistress uh, or, or uh, no. It, yeah. Yeah. That's the one where, and she ends up dead, but mm-hmm. um, spoiler alert. And, 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 <laughs> and, 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 you know, but she plays these people that are s- smarter than everybody in the room. Um, yeah. I suspect that she is smart, the smartest person in every room that she's in. And it comes through, I think brilliantly mm-hmm. in my brilliant career. This is a character who from the very beginning, the very first frame knows exactly what she wants um, from her life and, you know, uh, all the struggle, all the strife, I, you know, I should throw it over to you. What did you think of my brilliant career? I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really good link to compare her to Jean Arthur. I can see that. It's kind of an interesting movie because it brings up memories of Jane Austen and the Brontes, because I think her character sort of goes through an arc that's kind of similar a little bit to um, Jane Eyre, as far as like having to be uh, like a governess or teach these kids, but it's, it's under completely different circumstances. There's not a romance that develops. It's she's forced into this, but she wants bigger things. So it's kind of an interesting um, blend of, the content of those books, but also the lives of the women that wrote them, Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte. So I kind of saw that a little bit this time, but yeah, it's just a lovely movie. Yeah. I love that. I love that comparison. I mean, the, the Brontes especially were very invested in the story of a place. Yeah. Um, the way that they wrote about the Moors and uh, about the, the, the elements and yes. the buildings and, you know, where Jane Eyre is imprisoned, you know, the, the, the sort of architecture of, of, of oppression. Um, and, and the, this film as well, it, it deals mm-hmm. with how a woman during this period anywhere in the world uh, yeah. uh, is, is sort of oppressed and imprisoned by the strictures of her society. And yet, uh, you know, Gillian Armstrong in this film, she, takes no um t- takes every opportunity to show her unrestrainable mm-hmm. right it, uh, when it rains on uh, and she's out early in the film she doesn't try to find cover she doesn't squeal like oh no, no. <laughs> she, she throws her arms out yes. and gets soaked or when, when she's being wooed in a very Victorian mm-hmm. sort of lake sort of way by a very young and, and startlingly handsome Sam Neill. Yeah. Um, she, uh, 
just to break it up a little bit, she 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 overturns the boat and they both end up in the in the water. I know. And then she has I to wash that. that crazy hair. Yeah. I know. And I love that she's sitting later with her with his aunt, I think. And 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 it's a beautifully framed scene. They're sitting on a porch and the aunt is sort of framed between two large trees, like she's sort of stuck in the middle. And then on to 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 her left, screen right, is uh, is Judy Davis's character, character Sabella. Mm-hmm. And then to screen left is Sam Neill, and they're all sort of segmented off, like almost like yes. a comic book panel, right? And the the aunt, you know, not looking up for her, from her knitting, says, "Looks like you washed that hair of yours." Yeah, and then when, when Sam Neill comes in, she says. Looks like you've washed yours as well. Hmm. Perhaps an accident <laughs> happened by the river. Hmm. You know, there's so much. Um, I don't know. There, there's so much elemental here, and, and the, that that chase where that that ends in a pillow fight and a wrestling match in the grass. Oh, between, that's oh, a beautiful sequence. Yeah, oh, it's so beautiful, and it shows her. And I, I'm going to say ugly, but I don't mean ugly in a physical. Mm-hmm. But, but it shows her lo- not perfectly poised she's panting is an obsessed with vanity yes yes (laughs) yes and and sweating and Mm -hmm. laughing and you know it reminded me of the chase sequence in the right stuff between uh sam oh yeah on the horse yes yes on the horse right Mm -hmm. but they're laughing and they're panting and they're out of breath and it's like real it's real it's Mm -hmm. more real than any number of, 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 of sex scenes, you know, yeah. it's, not sex, it's not a sex scene, right. But it's more real. It's like that scene in uh, seven men from now, the Bud, Bo- the Bud Boddicker flick mm-hmm. where, you know, um, Randolph Scott is lying underneath the floor of the wagon oh. where, you know, his lady ad- admirer and admire back is sleeping above him on the floor of the wagon. And so they're on top of each other, but they're not on top of each other. It's like the sexiest thing, right. Yeah. To see these guys, this physical, out so you know it reminds me too and i'm babbling and babbling i'm sorry jen and it reminds me of the wallace stevens poem an idea of order at key west where it talks about the uncontainability of the water Mm -hmm. and how men will try and try and try and put harbor lights out and try to put like but the water is the water yes especially when it's storming and i just i get that throughout my brilliant careers like this is a woman with Mm -hmm. you know every attempt is made at making her something that that she's not yeah and what i love is they're obsessed with calling her plain but her personality just just like the most beautiful person on earth can be because of their personality turned into the ugliest person you've ever seen there's just something so breathtakingly beautiful about her spirit and she just gets progressively I mean, Judy Davis is an attractive woman, so they're kind of nuts, but she gets, you know, just more lovely as it continues. And you can see why men would be drawn to her. And what you were saying about the water and the elements and how some of these scenes that aren't sex scenes are just sexier than anything else reminded me of Out of the Past, which when people say, like, what's your favorite love scene? It's always the one in Out of the Past with the storm when he's drying her hair, throws the towel, or um, I think the lamp gets tossed over or something and the door shuts. And it's just, that's all you need. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. And I think, yeah. And and yeah, and you you saying that reminds me of The Quiet Man with all the wind blowing and everything, right? And and, and and John Wayne grabbing (laughs) Marina O'Hara, like (laughs) blowing by. It is, yes, it is so great. And it's elemental. And it speaks to, you know, for 
speaking just for me, but you know, maybe for you as well, but I, I'm not in control of my writing. I, I, I can't just not do it. You know, yeah. I, I feel like if I, if I took a vacation from it, I would still find myself, you know, I'd wake up in the morning with a notebook full yep. of like little sentences and things like that. And, and it isn't because I'm divinely inspired, you know, like the mm-hmm. romanticists believed it, you know, I don't think a divine wind blows through me, um, a, a hot wind perhaps, but, but, but I, I, I can't not do it. It's compulsive. It's yeah. a compulsive, whatever, a defense mechanism, addiction, Whatever it is, I can't not do it. And so this idea of an uncontrollable nature that 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 that's sort of you know become a visual metaphor, literalized, ma- manifested in my brilliant career, um, is is compelling to me. Yeah, I, I, I feel that. Uh, yeah, that you get it, man. You get it. Whoever you are that did this, uh, whether it's Armstrong or 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 or, or it's uh, uh, I think uh, Eleanor Whitcomb. Who wrote oh, okay. it? You know, wrote whoever it is that did this, yes. you get that element of creativity. That's it's not romantic and beautiful. It's ugly and raw and uncontainable, and I can't yeah. stop doing it. <laughs> well, the next film you chose is a sleeper that I really love, but I feel that not enough people have seen Dana Ireland's beautiful, heartbreaking romance about two writers who cross paths at very different places in their lives. It's the 1996 indie biopic, The Whole Wide World, which charts Texas school teacher and aspiring writer, Novelin Price Ellis, played by Renee Zellweger, who meets and starts a relationship with the wildly successful eccentric pulp fiction writer, Robert E. Howard, brought vividly to life by Vincent D'Onofrio, a depressive with a possible personality disorder who lives with his parents, including his tuberculosis suffering mother, whom he adores. Robert is one of what Jack Kerouac might've called the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, who never say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, burn. And D'Onofrio plays him like that. It's one of the actor's greatest performances in my book, and it's definitely Zellweger's best early one, as it was not only nominated for an Independent Spirit Award, but also landed her Jerry Maguire. So, Walter, what are your thoughts on the whole wide world, these actors, and the writers they play? Oh, man, I I love pulp fiction. Do, Do you read pulps? Sometimes I haven't in years. For I went through a whole phase where I did for a while, and yeah, the writing is just so lively and just ah uh, muscular, and so, yeah, and so literate. I think calling something pulp is such a a, a diminishing misnomer for Reductive. some of these things. You know, yeah. I started reading, got real obsessed with Edgar Rice Burroughs. I mean, my 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 first love out of Weird Tales was H.P. Lovecraft. As mm-hmm. so many, you know, that's how I kind of got into it, but. Um, you know, through Stephen King, uh, but I uh, uh, I went through a period where I read as anything that I could by Edgar Rice Burroughs. His, you know, his, his Mars series, of course, his Tarzan, of course, you know, his, his Pelotor series, of course, you know, all those the, the big mm-hmm. ones, but also his, his one shots. And I was always stunned by the quality of the language. Not 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 just the the, the pr- production, which is immense. How I many like Edgar Wallace? How many thousands and millions of words did he have published in his lifetime? But the quality of the language is extraordinary. Yeah. It, it is the the I, I I have to look up words when I read pulp fiction more than almost any other fiction that I read. You know, uh, uh, modern fiction especially, they're challenging. 
and the sentence construction is exquisite. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you you miss that, I, I think, when when you just sort of brand everything as oh pulp, pulpy, pulpy, pulp, pulp. Yeah. Um, but 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 I I, I love love Robert E. Howard. I love him because he's st- d- distinct. Mm-hmm. There, there's something about the way that he writes to me that was always um, dripping with testosterone. Yeah. Dripping. And I think that's for what first attracted me to Walter Hill in a very similar way. The, those two artists, Hill and Howard, they both have an extraordinary sensitivity at their core. I was first attracted to James Elroy because in the middle of all the violence and the hard language and the style, style there is this heart of chivalry in it. He's always looking out for women and for the, for minorities. Mm-hmm. And it's compelling to me. There's something vulnerable and wounded that they, they cocoon in this shell of language. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is what writers can often do as well. You know, they use words as a means to um, pr- protect themselves, to be aggressive, but also to, to project sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what I think is what's so brilliant about the whole white world. What I love so about this dear film is to show the real tenderness of the creator of Conan the Barbarian. It's, yes. it's such a beautiful romantic uh male mm-hmm. image self-image male 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 di- di- dichotomy right it's like um uncas and uh and, and daniel day lewis and last of the mohicans the two of them together is uh in hawkeye is that, the two of them together the perfect man right the very yeah. sensitive quiet one and the very um uh, uh athletic uh, yeah. long distance runner one um that there's uh something really gorgeous about this and, and you know to your point, Vincent D'Onofrio is so good yes. in this movie. He's so good in this movie. He um he is those things, right? He's this big yeah. physical presence of a man, right? Yes. He's physically big. And th- th- there's a scene where he's like in a wife beater and suspenders and a cowboy hat. And it's like, man, there's, there's <laughs> hardly very, there are very few people who are ever more of a man than, than Vincent D'Onofrio in this film. Yep. And yet... And yet, you know, um, there's this unbelievable shell of sensitivity. His performance, you know, when when he realizes sometimes that he's hurt. Um, oh, it's uh, heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And those emotions play across his face instantly. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there's that scene early that I love where, or in the middle maybe, where Novalina is talking about some of the writing that she's doing. Yeah. And I think it's a story that she's written about a movie, a girl that's saved and becomes a movie star or something. Yes, I gave my laughing. daughter fame yes, I <laughs> yes. Know. that made me laugh yes oh my god and he can't stop laughing and but he no. keeps stopping and you know uh, pausing and looking at her like and then but he'll laugh again when she, he, she says more. and he can't help himself and you know it's that performance is so delicate there's so many it ways to do that where what a jerk what yeah. an insensitive claw no wonder he wrote Conan. but He's the way trying. That he plays, yeah. Yes, right? Mm-hmm. It adds all of these layers of, of, of complexity and humanity, real humanity to Robert Howard, who, of course, to, you know, as you mentioned in, in your intros, um, suffered from depression, mm-hmm. suffered probably from some sort of you know, yeah. or, or disorder or mental illness, um, and, and killed himself. Mm-hmm. And so knowing this, going into the film, knowing that this is where yeah. – ends and you know having a literal sort of Chekhov's got, uh, gun uh, show up in there but there's that performance and and, and, and Zellweger's as well she is I don't know that I've ever liked her more 
but then I like her in this movie mm. because she's tough and smart and all of those things and independent, all those things that we loved about Judy Davis's character and my brilliant career. She's all those things and more. And also, yes. and also there's this like incredible sweetness about her and, you know, actually horniness too. It, I don't know if yes. you felt like that. There's, you know, when she was she was writing her diary saying, I don't know why I like him so much. Maybe because he, he laughed at me or something, but you know, I'm feeling like real, Heat. Yeah, there was a lot of chemistry. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yes. You tell so, me more about what you thought about um, the whole wide world. Oh, I adore this movie. And I think it was really kind of cool that you tapped in on for Vincent D'Onofrio that he is sort of like a the Robert E. Howard character. Or he just, maybe his persona is like that. Because um, he actually shot Feeling Minnesota, I'm from Minnesota, right next to like the hotel i mean it's a terrible movie but the motel that they shot was right next to my uh great uncle's bar and so the cast and crew would go over there and um just hang out and my great uncle's favorite was vincent d'onofrio because i guess he would just hold court and just talk to everyone and tell these stories that went on and it's like you know your jaw would be on the floor you'd be just you know, drunk on every word he was saying. And so I always think of that like, oh, I like him because he was really nice to my great uncle and everything. But then when I saw this movie, it was like, you could sort of imagine that why he was drawn to this role and what he, yeah, saw in it. And I think when you're talking about masculinity with the film, what's so interesting is there is that tenderness to him. And it's almost like he's trying on, the uber masculine front like he's trying different sides of himself with her with himself but one thing that I always thought was really kind of sweet is the way he cares and listens and acknowledges her desire to be a writer like right from the beginning of the movie because sometimes you know, men sort of humor women when they talk about art even today. And so it was kind of cool to see in the 1930s that when there was no agenda because she was dating his friend, that he did acknowledge her and listen. And I thought that was really lovely. Totally lovely and completely believable when he does it. Yes. It, it, it doesn't, you know, I, I didn't feel like there was an ulterior motive to the character either. Not right? at all. Because that could just throw you out, couldn't it? Yeah. He's like, oh, he's just trying to get her. He's just yep. trying to, you know, I didn't feel like that. I felt no. like it was a genuine sort of interest in the, another person who was using mm-hmm. writing. And and I think you can see the disappointment too at a couple points where he realizes that she's not the kind of writer that he is. Not yeah. not not like just the genre, not 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 the subject, but rather the way that she does it is not and I think he was looking for maybe this is me trying to psychoanalyze the character, but maybe looking for a connection in some in yeah. finding another person who saw the world the way that he did, like a and mirror. Approach, yeah. Yes, approach writing the, the way that he did. Like writing was um, something that he needed to do to escape the reality of his mother dying. He needed to escape mm-hmm. the reality of his own loneliness and his otherness and you know strangeness in the world. And um, you know, it, it's based on a memoir that Noveline, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the real Noveline Price wrote. And I think the, the novel is called, uh, I mean, the memoir is called He Who Walks Alone, I think. And I think that's really kind of nails it. It's, it, it's, it's, it's taken from Conan, but it, it, it's, 
Robert Howard. And and then it, it causes, caused me, this film did way back when I first saw it, you know, um, to go back and look at some of the Conan stories that I had read from a different lens to, yeah. to, to kind of begin to understand Conan. The character is not just the sort of masculinity drenched uh, figure, but a, 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 a the last, the outsider, mm-hmm. the the one whose family was murdered, the one who is an orphan essentially to the world and uh, worships a strange god and mm-hmm. uh, is unaccepted essentially wherever he goes. And th- th- there's moments in the Conan stories where he's like, he'll he'll he, 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 he'll be in a negotiation or he'll be talking to a, a, a chieftain or, or a leader and he'll stand up in the middle of it and draw a sword and, 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 and kill everybody because, you know, it's, it's fake. It's not real. It's not true. <laughs> so to your point about disguises and the, the, the roles that we are forced to play um, and the way that D'Onofrio nails that, I, I think it's, it's, it's really poignant that you mentioned because just like my, 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 my brilliant career, um, there are certain expectations that are given to people who have shown a facility in a particular thing or mm-hmm. uh, or on the basis of their gender or or their social class or you know and and these first two films and, and, and the others that we'll talk about too are very interested in money mm-hmm. and making a living and how hard it is to make a living and how especially for artists, especially yeah. for creators, and how soul sucking it is to find another job to make it while you're doing it, this romantic image of a writer who comes home from a 12 hour shift doing whatever and pulling yep. out an old Smith Corona and then, and, and, you know, putting them on their knees in the bathtub and writing a, a, the great mm. American novel. And you know, that's damaging to people, to, to, yes. to, to creators who 12 hours after 12 hour shift, you know, and I've worked my I whole really life. Think straight. Like, yes. no, forget exactly. It. Forget it. You know, all I can think about is, you know, taking a lot of pills or something. That's all I can do after yep. a whole day of work like that and to be able to create some people can you yep. know they're, they're superhuman <laughs> the, the, the the reality for writers and creators of any kind i think but for for writers is that taking a job to make rent mm-hmm. makes it very hard to do the thing that you have to do yep which is right yeah no that's a brilliant point the next film you suggested is one of my all-time favorites based on michael shabon's gorgeous yet admittedly far more melancholic and contemplative 1995 novel and adapted by fabulous Baker Boys writer-director Steve Cloves. We're talking about director Curtis Hansen's 2000 stunner Wonder Boys. Earlier in the week in a tweet that went well mini viral for me anyway I wrote I've only seen a handful of movies where as soon as we meet the characters I've thought these are my people but the characters in Wonder Boys are 100% my people I like them more than some of my relatives this film not only gets writers it gets me this was not hyperbole I adore this movie and everyone in it in its weird writerly world set on a small liberal arts college campus in Pittsburgh it was shot at Carnegie Mellon University over the course of a three-day weekend event called WordFest. the movie follows Michael Douglas's award-winning author turned professor Grady Tripp it's a perfect name, as he finds himself at a personal and professional crossroads, taking his most promising yet equally most psychologically concerning pupil, Toby Maguire's James Lear, another great name, under his wing, they embark on a memorable journey or trip. 
involving a cap gun, stolen Marilyn Monroe memorabilia, a never-ending novel, too much pot, a pregnant mistress, a nosy publisher, and one of the best movie soundtracks of the new century. Obviously, I'm partial to this film. I curated and hosted a screening and discussion of it at Scottsdale Public Library, mainly because I just wanted to see it on the big screen again. But I would love to know what Wonder Boys means to you, because I know it's a favorite of yours. I, 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 I you know, I bite my lip quiveringly when, when you're talking about Wonder Boys. I love this movie. Yes. <laughs> I love this movie so much. And it's one of those movies that, you know, increasingly over the years, as I revisit it, any five minutes of this movie makes me cry. It doesn't matter what it is. I, I begin to cry when, you know, the opening credit starts with that Bob Dylan song. I, I mm-hmm. begin to cry when the narration comes on, the voiceover with, you know, Grady saying, uh, he, he, you know, you know, talking about James and t- talking about the class and then, you know, talking about Hannah and, and, and her red boots. And it's, um, oh, and later when he describes his ex-wife as, as addicted to words and that he was the dealer of, of, his, of her drug of choice, you know, the, 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 the movie devastates me because, you know, I, I love what you said in that, in that viral tweet and, and, and about how I know these people. I know yeah. them. I, mm-hmm. And the, 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 the party sequence that sort of opens the film, I've been to those parties. Yes. I've been in houses <laughs> like that, right? You know, know. Uh, especially in grad school where you overhear conversations where someone is saying, I think that adaptation is more literary than cinematic. And you, know, you hear I know, even the throwaway lines. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, right. I'm reminded of the. Uh, uh, um, the T.S. Eliot, the, the, uh, you know, in the rooms, people come and go talking of Michelangelo. Like, that, that is, <laughs> this is actually uh, uh, my life. And I had a relationship very much like this when I was in graduate school with my advisor, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he was not, not like pathetic, like Grady is in a lot of ways, but he was <laughs> um, unconventional. And he, I think, uh, I, I'm, I'm still very close with him, but I, I think I love him so because he recognized that I was not a conventional student, mm-hmm. not, not in the way of most sort of liberal arts, whatever, you know, I was not, I, I, I was different, especially in my old in my own mind, but perhaps in, in his, his estimation as well. But we, we became very close talking about Coleridge and Keats and Wordsworth. He was my romanticism professor. And um, that relationship is so well, Mm-hmm. construct and i know that michael douglas has always been very regretful about the way that this movie was treated and handled yes. and, and you know got it to be released twice i think um mm-hmm. you know to try again with a different sort of thing if you look at the trailers it's like they they, they touted this as this slapstick almost comedy i know um, yeah it, it's just so like it isn't that it, it's like no. the big chill for our generation um, it is yeah, I'm, I'm much older than you, but if you know, for our generation, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, where it, it, right, and, and it sends me exactly back to that atmosphere, exactly back to that era. I feel like I really, to a large extent, was James Lear. This really um, weird, maybe insular. Uh, I knew weird things. I I was sad a lot. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I never had a gun, but if if I wasn't. <laughs> you know, if I wasn't so so liable to pop off, I might have gotten one. I, I don't know. It, it's it, it's a movie that, I, that feels um, personal. It does. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's a hangout movie too. Like as what you were saying with the big chill, like as soon as it begins, you just feel like you're in the room and that line that girl gives, I mean, Jesus, what is it with you Catholics? It's like, (laughs) you have been, it kills me because I was born, I mean, I'm an atheist, but born and raised a Catholic for a little bit. And so you kind of, then you're like, I know James's stories now right away. And I also love that you feel, at least I do, a little bit like I've been multiple variations of these characters. Like I related a little bit to James Lear. I was always very close to my professors. I'm still really good friends with uh, my film professor that I had in college. And, you know, you feel a little bit like or at least I did, I was the Hannah, like in class, if there was somebody who wasn't doing their assignment or whatever, and it was a group project, the teacher would always stick me with them to try to, you know, make make them do their work or I guess rub off a little bit. And so you can see that with her wanting to help James. Um, I love Terry Crabtree. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is one of my favorite actors. He's actually I wrote about him. That's how I got into film in Chaplin when I was a kid and it won an award. And then it was like, so I kind of credit all of my film stuff to Robert Downey Jr. So I was so excited to see him in this and what he does with his, just his body language and some of the weird choices he makes. Like he walks in the room in the morning and sees Grady after writing and then sees James on the couch and he's attracted to James and he just mouths Jimmy, 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 and then walks out of the room and it's hilarious. And so, but it's like situational humor. So I do remember the trailers for this movie kind of advertising it like it was a campus comedy. And if anything, it just felt more real like this is what campus life is like like you've been to those parties where as a woman and you're talking to a man and then um you know it comes up that you are a writer and they're like oh you didn't tell me you're a writer and hannah has the best line you didn't ask and so i just feel like yeah the movie gets all of these people it treats them all with respect and you know as i age i see different facets of myself in all of them well you know i i i would say there that you're related to to hannah in the sense that you're very kind i mean she's the person who stands up for him in that seminar to open the film to say yeah i think what he's trying to say and you don't hear what she says but you know clearly what she's doing is she's like really reading and really trying to understand so there's sort of a Yes, you know she's being a critic, a good one, and I think they're, they're, that that that's relatable to you as well. I've always found about your writing and, and your demeanor um, to be kind. That I oh, think you, you give people the benefit of the doubt, you give work the benefit of the doubt, and you're looking for things to discuss. Like you, you are, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're. You, you're, you're, you're not a smoke blower. I'm not saying that, but you'll say, <laughs> you know, it wasn't for me, but I will say dot, dot, dot. And then you'll, 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 you'll figure out what the intention was. And that level of empathy, I think, is something that I love about Hannah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love, too, those little throwaway moments that you talk about. Like at, at, at the party when Hannah comes up to Grady or opposite Grady sort of interrupts that conversation mm-hmm. that you quoted um, and says, you better watch out. I mean, she's been yeah. published twice in the Paris Review, right? And she touches his arm. Mm-hmm. And then Hanson makes the decision to show Frances McDormand, the wife of the yeah. dean, the, you know, great, Grady's girlfriend, looking at that. 
Yep. Not, not, not. And when I first watched it, you know, 2000, I'm a grown man, but I, I had just been married and, mm-hmm. and so, so, so pretty young, you know, how old was my 26, 27. And I, um, I, uh, read that the first time, the very first time I saw it with my wife, I read that as jealousy, perhaps about, you know, whatever, when, when I watch it now in the last five years or so, and I've seen it maybe two or three times in the last five years, I can't stop watching this movie. Um, yes. I see it differently. I see that it sort of is like a caution look. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, here's an older man who is um, used to a certain level of attention and praise, but he's not got, gotten the same kind lately because no. it's not been published. And here's a young woman who is smart and well-read and a fan. And mm-hmm. how dangerous that situation can be for older men. And, and that's, you know, I, I won't, that's, doesn't happen to me all the time. It happens to me sometimes. And yeah. I know the peril that's involved there of that sort of quick infatuation with a fan where you're like, Oh, maybe I'm not all dried up after all. Maybe there's yeah. uh, something. Like <laughs> and, and her look sort of encompasses all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's important to remember that this time was like Robert Downey Jr. had not been resuscitated yet. No. He, he, right. Yeah. I mean, his, mm-hmm. his career was essentially, over or a joke sort of you know i mean he would show up in little cameos and like bowfinger i think or he was in that serial killer movie that i really love the neil jordan film in dreams but you know not a lot of successful stuff really and he was still sort of thought of i think as as, as a brat packer who had uh one of those child star stories mm-hmm. that was just sort of in the process of this and it wasn't you know it would be a little while before he got back to uh you know, Iron Man, I think. What was Iron what was the first one? Two thousand eight, two thousand seven. Yeah. Like so around was, there. Yeah, a while a while ago. Yes. And Steve Cloves as well, um, who I adore, right? Yes. He did Baker Boys, and then he followed it up with Flesh and Bone. Which, Great which, film. Yeah. Oh my God, it's so good. I'm so grateful of that. And but not surprised that that you know it, it's so good. And then it's like seven years between that and his next job, which is this film. And immediately after this, he does, you know, the Harry, Harry Potter. Potter. Yeah. Right. But but it's like this is like the regeneration point, quote unquote, for me anyway, of a lot of these figures that I, I was aware of or had been aware of, and now suddenly here they are again. And Rip Torn is great. Oh, I love him. He's always yes. great. The, the last time I feel like I saw Rip Torn in an academic set film was The Man Who Fell to Earth in a very different sort of professorial. Oh, role. But, yeah, I forgot um, about that. I love Rip Torn so much. He's in mm-hmm. a. You mentioned Walter Hill, but he he he's in a. Uh, you know Walter Hill film as well um, and amazing in it he's the best perhaps the best performance that he's ever given is in that mm-hmm. film as well but I, I love I love him I love Rip Torn I love everybody in this movie Francis McDormand Come oh on. outstanding I know I, I wrote Come a piece on. on some of her performances last year and I was already, there were too many I was going into. And I thought about this and then I'm like, no, I'll probably write something bigger on Wonder Boys in the future, but it was hard not to want to zero in on it. But you brought up the thing with uh, Hannah and the older man and sort of, you know, just feeling like, hey, I still have it. It reminds me of Moonstruck, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. 
this great speech that is given by John Mahoney. Gives Mahoney. a really good speech. Uh, he's playing a professor. Right. Olympia Dukakis has dinner with him, and she's like, well, she was too young for you, or that kind of thing. And he says that, you know, he's this old gas bag, basically, I think is the line he actually gives, who's giving the same speech every time. But every once in a while, you look up, and it's a new... Uh, young woman looking at you with these eyes because this is all new she's never heard it before and just the irresistible pull there and so I I see that but I also see that Grady is aware of that because he probably gets groupies all the time or has had that and he cares genuinely for Hannah as a person and he doesn't want to do that and is totally in love with Francis McDormand. So I love the complexity of all of these characters. They're never one thing. I think in other hands, Hannah might've been a little too one-dimensional or Grady might've seemed a little too lascivious. Like there was a different draft of the script actually that I remember reading online that dealt with those red cowboy boots that mm. she wore. And in one scene, I still remember this because I'm glad it wasn't in the film, uh, Grady walks in the room and he's like drawn and wants to see like what is her deal with these red cowboy boots and just see she has just regular feet like a regular person and it was a weird scene but I mean I understood what he was doing I'm just glad it didn't end up in the movie though yeah say that. that seems a little fetishy I'm glad that yes that's I know yeah. it's a little like the um the Dostoevsky and his mistress that uh, <laughs> was turned into yes the Martin Scorsese uh, what is it called? Life lessons. Life lessons, or or the first scene in Vera Diana with the 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 priest looking at the nun's feet. Um, yeah, gross. Yeah, so I was glad gross. that didn't make it in, but the movie really <laughs> respects and loves writers and how our minds are always soaking up everything. One of my favorite scenes is in the bar, which is after Word Fest, like the first night, where um, Crabtree. Uh, Downey Jr. and Michael Douglas are looking around the room and I think on anyone else's hands this would be like too mean and it it is mean but it's you can also just see the way they're trying to one-up one another uh, they observe this gentleman who they start in with uh, the president of the James Brown hair club for men and it goes from there and my favorite moment in the entire scene as they're going back and forth and just amusing one another is you think James Lear Toby Maguire is out of it or passed out and all of a sudden he just pops into the conversation with the most perfect end to the story that they've been creating ever and it just kills me I love it, it. it's it's amazing and the looks that they exchange the older people yeah. when they recognize that there's a young person with potential yeah or a person who's gifted is amazing and, and again is. you know that makes me want to cry just thinking about it because there's um you know through the course of of a lot of my, my life the hardest thing for me to overcome is expectation mm -hmm. where you know expectation of this or expectation of that but also expectation of positive things like you know he's got so much potential and i think seeing someone has potential is one of the most damning and debilitating things that you can say about someone. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I, I haven't done any deep thought about this, but mm -hmm. I know that it's true for me that working under, you know, through my whole childhood, the expectation of, of great potential was crippling. Scary. Yes. Crippling. Yeah. 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 And, and for writers, no less, there's, 
you know, for, 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 for Grady, the reason that he's um, so wrapped up, so, so, so balled up um, is because of the expectation mm-hmm. and the potential that he showed with his um, first novel that he was never able to yeah. repeat it. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he never even could, could even try. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I love the feedback and I, and I think about it all the time when I'm writing now and I'm about to, to foist some beast onto my editor um, I, I, that uh, of that sequence where uh, the, uh, Hannah says, um, you know, it's really beautiful. There's a really beautiful stuff in here, but I think at some point along the way you stopped making choices. Yeah. You tell us to make choices and you didn't make any. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. And then, you know, I'm immediately th- think of, you know, that, 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 that old maxim in writing, you know, kill your darlings. Oh, um, yeah, exactly. And that sequence where it's manifested in the film where Robert Downey Jr. drives very badly and, and the whole manuscript was flying out the door and he's trying to catch it, you know, the sort of, what is it? It's almost like a, like a Jacques Tati moment where he's trying mm-hmm. to catch all the pages blowing Why? away and, and Trip watches it go. And, it's horror and then Maybe peace. Good. Yes. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. free of it. Finally, it was almost a prison. I don't believe in writer's block, but he just kept writing and writing and it's probably turning into dribble. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a kind of block. And I feel that yeah. sometimes when I'm covering festivals, like, you know, covering Sundance now I've, I've produced, you know, six or seven reviews in three days. And Oof. I don't yeah. even, I don't even know anymore. You know, yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. I don't know if I'm talking about the same movie anymore. I don't know if I, I like this movie or just didn't like the one before enough so that I like this one more. Than, you know, do, yeah, you know, it's exhausting. It's, it's you, exhausting. Yeah. And this idea of logaria, you know, being a form of block and being a form of dishonesty. Uh, fascinating and you know we're, we're getting really granular into the writer mind now but but um you know to the extent that i have it but 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 there's so much like little moments that i think that's why we go back to this movie so much mm-hmm. it isn't just the interpersonal the romantic the no. grown-up moments that you talk about but it's also the moments about craft and the moments about um desire for acceptance and desire for praise yeah that that proves to be you know, and, or and, and the real value of mentorship. I love how he's the one that starts the applause at the end in the conference yeah. when it's oh, announced that James has found a publisher. Love that. Oh. Take a bow, James. Yeah. Bow, James, and he does. Yeah, it's adorable. The, the, yeah. The, these big gestures to me are, you know, it, it's almost a sledgehammer moment. That moment for me, as you know, the the line in Royal Tannenbaum's where. But the Ben Stiller character says, I've had a rough year. It's almost as Makes emotionally. Makes me cry. Just yeah. that line. Yeah. As almost as emotionally powerful for me now. Um, that mm-hmm. moment in Wonder Boys. So take a bow, James. And he stands mm-hmm. up and smiles and kind of takes a bow. That's that. It's like, I feel like I feel at the end of a good stage play when the characters come back out on stage for their moment. I feel like that's him taking a bow for Wonder Boys, you know, yeah. right before the coda. Um, and I, I remember the first time I saw it, I was really, really scared that they were going to kill Grady. That, you know, when he has that sort of swooning at the balcony, yes. that he's actually going to fall and die. I had a real fear about that because I felt like this is um, the kind of movie that would do it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I was, uh, I love this movie. And I love what you were saying exactly is it kind of shows the role of mentorship, but the role that all of these people play on the creative process. 
like you have the chancellor who kind of facilitates you have Hannah who sees very crystal clear, like you were pointing out, she is a critic and she's going to do editing. We overhear in the voiceover at the end. And, you know, you've got Crabtree when he goes and they rescue James Lear, which is another one of my favorite lines about, we didn't know what we were rescuing, but sometimes everyone needs to be rescued. It's beautiful. And he sees what James was working on and his typewriter reads it out loud. And you realize it's about Grady, but as brilliant as it is terry kind of zooms in on this kid needs an editor and so it shows you all the different roles these people play and i think it's great did you read shabon's book because the ending is uh it's different and i i respect what both of the titles both wonder boys were doing the book and the film and they're very very different animals but I feel like this one, this ending, I, I prefer for the story they're telling. I, yeah, I, I have read the book, you know, and I, I'm, I, gosh, I like Michael Chabon. I don't like the book. And I think the problem Not is because one. I read the, I saw the movie first. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, here's the thing about the, the that old thing, the movie's always better. I don't believe, uh, the book is always better. I don't believe that. I think it's about 50-50. No. Yeah. You know, it's, even if you just look at Hitchcock, almost all of his movies were based on really bad books. But the, the there's, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, I love, I love the way that, um, you know, you could say that he made the commercial decision, Curtis Hanson. Yeah. Right? He, you know, uh, but I I love how um, he lets us off the hook a little bit. Yes. And, and I don't always feel like like that. I don't usually feel like that. I mm-hmm. like to be challenged by movies. I like movies kind of that make me feel like crap. But I care about these characters. Yeah. The affection you feel for them is real. And yeah. you don't want to yeah. spoil that. Exactly. And spell. this is not what happens in the book, but but metaphorically, if you left all, the, all these guys bleeding by the side of the road, I would yeah. not appreciate it no. and you know I, I, I kind of felt the same way about you know her, her, the, that movie hereditary which people love you know and i i, I really adore it for the, the the tony collette um performance but i think the movie is kind of an asshole in the sense that yeah, yeah yeah it's it's very cruel towards her it makes a, a mockery of her yeah um, and it and not in a useful way i think it's just being a jerk mm-hmm. and and this is me who loves exploitation films, who's seen all sorts of violence towards characters that I like, all sorts of whatever, but all of them seem to have a purpose. This one just seemed to be cruel, purposeless and cruel. Yeah. yeah. And I, I feel like that about his films, Ari Aster, I have to say. I think he would rather be making ordinary people, but mm-hmm. I think um, he feels stuck in horror now. And so he's his resentment and his disdain for the genre comes through because he doesn't understand. I think that horror is perhaps the most empathetic of genres. And yeah. you know, you know, Kramer versus Kramer is psychopathic. Um, it is, but yeah, but yeah, but you know, like like Sus- Suspiria is fascinating and interesting mm-hmm. and, and you know, empathetic. I think in a way that some of those movies are not. But back to Wonder Boys, yeah, I prefer. I thought. Really quick, Andy. I thought I was the only one that felt that way about Aster, so I'm glad. Oh, no, yes. solidarity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I don't know him. I, no, okay. I, I don't pretend to know him, I, no. whatever. But, you know, from his short film through his two features, yeah, ugly work. 
yeah ugly work and and not ugly in a way like you know al adamson or, or whatever you know these, these exploitation artists abel ferrara not ugly in that way which is useful and interesting and fascinating and full of stuff there's nothing in the basement of those films mm-hmm. they just are ugly and and they're showy yeah um, in an ugly way and what's hardest about that for me i have to confess is how many people like him Yes, I like with Midsummer. <laughs> I was like, I'm just not going to talk about this movie online at all, basically. Yeah, it, it's mean. It is. It's mean, and I uh, get it. I get you're mad at something, but just like a lot of these younger filmmakers that come out, and you know, um, Sam Levinson's another one. Where it's like you're using the suffering of other people, especially you know people at risk or minority populations, to ventriloquize your grievance. Mm-hmm. What is your grievance? Yeah, you're you're white. You're well educated. You're you're from Hollywood royalty. In the case of Levinson, what exactly are you mad about? <laughs> you know, it's like the Max Landis school. Like, what is your issue? Yeah, what's what your damage? Your, what's your damage? <laughs> or your major I mean, I, malfunction? Yes. To go back to a. Yes, D'Onofrio. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I was thinking about those other roles that D'Onofrio plays, like Private Joker, but also like like playing the bug in Men in, Men in Black, another movie about disguise and sort of mm-hmm. ripping away sort of that disguise. But um, yeah, man, Astro movies are <laughs> freaking mean, and I wouldn't have liked Wonder Boys with no. the book's ending. I, I love that Wonder Boys. The film has a sense of grace about his character, about these characters that he correctly identifies as mm-hmm. ones that are precious to us. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Well, Charlie Kaufman's follow-up to being John Malkovich adaptation is the next film we thought we would discuss today. The 2002 movie finds the iconoclastic screenwriter reteaming with his Malkovich director, Spike Jones for this unusual adaptation of not only New Yorker magazine and freelance journalist, Susan Orlean's brilliant book, The Orchid Thief, but also Kaufman's own struggles to adapt The Orchid Thief. In the film, Nicolas Cage plays both Charlie Kaufman and his fictional annoying wannabe screenwriter, more socially at ease, hanger-on twin brother, Donald. Meryl Streep plays Susan Orlean, and Chris Cooper is Orlean's memorable, enigmatic subject, John LaRoche. It's a film I remember loving more when it came out than when I just revisited it, because structurally, I thought it kind of lost itself a bit in the bizarre third act, but it's still very, very entertaining. And like most Kaufman-penned movies, It lives or dies by its performances, and these are just tremendous. In film school, I did an acting project on Nicolas Cage, and I chose this performance as the flip side to Moonstruck, which is operatic and external, and this finds him so flustered and internalized. His early scenes where he's nervously meeting Tilda Swinton or struggling to write are two of my favorites. And the scene he shares with Brian Cox, who plays story screenwriting guru Robert McKee, is just an all-timer. It really gets the writing process right more than any of the other films we've mentioned today, I felt. And how much writers love having written, but actually hate the act of writing. So there's a lot going on in these moments. So what about you, Walter? What are your thoughts on adaptation? Oh God! You know the the thing that I say about Charlie Kaufman movies is that I never really fully understand them, but they always seem to understand me. And adaptation <laughs> is 
yeah, man, it is amazing. Curtis Hansen, by the way, has a cameo in this movie. He plays uh, Susan Orlean's husband. Yes, that's Maybe true. That, uh, funny. Uh, but um, I, uh, gosh, where to begin? Yeah, you know, there, there's that Thomas Mann quote about writers, something like, you know, a writer is someone for whom writing is very difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the, there's the, there's Fran Lebowitz on, on her, her her new show with Scorsese now who uh, talks about, right, you know, she's never met anybody who could write worth a damn who liked her to write, except for one person. I think Tony Mars. Yeah. But, um, the, you know, and, and, and it's like, right. If you really love writing, if you really, really, really love it, you can't wait to do it and you can't wait to go and do it. I don't think you're very good at it, probably. And that, that, that's something that only Fran Leibowitz can say and get away with without seeming yes. like, a, like a total prick. But yeah. um, a- adaptation nails all of these things. And that scene that you mentioned with, with Tilda Swinton um, is so good. You know, yes. his internal dialogue is so good. It's like, is she looking at my hairline? I'm disgusting. Yeah. I'm ugly. I'm sweating. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sweating and I'm so boring. Why do I say that? Why do I, no one likes me. This is going to be, and then, and then her line is, we really like your work. We really love <laughs> yeah. you do. You know? know? And I'm like, that's every fucking day of my yeah. life. That's every time I turn <laughs> a piece in. That's every, every time I submit a piece to somewhere. The mm-hmm. the space between submission and getting my notes, my first set of notes back from my editor. Oh, it's, it's agony. Agony. It's torture. It's hell. I cannot take it. I, mm-hmm. I am miserable. And then the notes usually are like, they're usually very kind, you know? Yeah. Not not that they're always good, but you you they're never what I, I fear. Yeah. Which is, stop doing this. <laughs> yes. Go away. What are you thinking about <laughs> you doing? Hack. You, yeah, they're you not write like as well that. as you sing, which is not as well, not not well at all. And I expect that. And I get something different, which is like, you need to do this or maybe focus this. It's a little flabby here. Don't, don't use that word so many times. I'm like, okay, thank you. Yeah. And then I feel relief and I can almost dance off a rooftop for a few minutes. And then there's the next, <laughs> in the next project. And so um, even after 20 some years of doing this, you know, semi-professionally as a quote unquote career, that never gets easier. That never mm-hmm. gets easier. You know, I recently had a project resurfaced that after about two and a half months of not hearing anything. And I thought it was dead and whatever. And it came back with notes and I was, Rather than being elated that the project had not died and that there was more to do, I was miserable that there's more to do. Mm-hmm. Now I have to go back to these interviews and these notes. Now I have to get <laughs> back in the same frame of mind. And you know, adaptation also understands that a writer needs to be in a safe place to write, and not just you know emotionally, but physically. Yes. Like you, you know, for me, I have to be in my basement with the door closed. With like, you know, I don't have one, but I wish I had an on-air sign or something. Mm-hmm. I could say, "Please don't come down here," because the threat of you coming down here and interrupting me in like half an hour or something is an anxiety in the back of my head that's making it difficult for me to write right now. Yeah. I have to have an hour before and an hour after that's safe. I have to mm-hmm. have a space that's safe. It's like. I don't want to portray myself as like a little delicate, you know, egg or flower or something, although I'm probably both, but there is that element to writing. I think that, that, that's not talked about very much. I, I have a good friend who's an artist, a, a, a painter and an illustrator. And we used to go on um, dates, creative dates where he would sit across from me and we would get, get a table at the Botanic Gardens or something away from our families or loving amazing mm-hmm. families and work. Yeah. Because we knew that we wouldn't talk to each other. I, I wouldn't, you know, and and you you were such a, I feel like such a jerk when you know someone pops in, my wife or my daughter or something, and says, "Hey, can I get you a cup of coffee?" In the middle of writing, or and, yeah, it's yeah. always at like the end of a piece or in the yes. middle of a sentence, and, and then you lose it, and yes. you're like, you don't want to be an asshole, but it's like, yes. oh yeah, 
what a kind gesture. What a thoughtful. You're really thinking yes. about me. You clearly love me. But my first response is like, please don't now, now, right now. Please don't yeah. even, <laughs> don't even, you know, can you lock the door on your way out? Thank you so much. You know, it's, yeah. it's like, I love seeing you and I love, but for me, I love when people are around, but I don't want anyone to talk to me. And I think <laughs> really kind of nails that interiority mm-hmm. of writing a lot where you have long strings of, you, you have novels of, dialogue in your head as you're writing mm-hmm. you know is this good enough is that the right word is i'm gonna get in trouble for this is if i use this too blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, all this talk back constantly and breaking yourself out of that world it's really hard to get back into where you were um adaptation seems to be about sort of that mixing of realities. like the last third of the movie is the screenplay that he's writing right mm-hmm. you know about the three and stuff so like it's like the movie becomes sort of the whole thing for me is a, 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 a meta text about the horror of writing. It um, is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think Kaufman does that better than anybody uh, does it. Uh, a strong hyperbolic statement. I haven't seen everything. So, but <laughs> from what I've seen, he gets closest for me to my process of self doubt and self loathing creation, too. Yeah. I feel like this is of the ones we're talking today just gets the process perfectly for me. Like the worst time is I'm always excited when I pitch something. And then as soon as it gets accepted, you're like, Oh, I actually need to write this now. That's always a horror. And then the other time I hate like we, besides of course, when people pop in or phone rings or that kind of thing is when I hand it to somebody and they actually like, want to read it right then I don't want to watch somebody read my work like I have to leave the room or that's just like dental torture basically yeah yes that's horrible it's almost like um I have the same horror about giving gifts and stuff sometimes like I give something you know I was like just open it out when you get home just yeah. you know, I don't want to for some reason I mean I think Christmas is an exception but for you know other things I just have like a I don't know what it is, Jan. I, yeah, I just, too intimate yeah. or too, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the, this expression is too personal. I don't want to say it while you're reading it. And, you know, if, if if you ever do read my Miracle Mile book, there's no obligation. Please don't feel like you I'm have to. I'm reading it. You I don't have wait. to. No, I, if you ever do, it was never really intended for an audience. And, and you know, I, I wrote it in like two weeks and I needed to do it. You know, I had some mm-hmm. sort of a mental thing and, 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 and you know, it was Bill who, you know, I, I, my editor at Film Freak Central, I, I told him, you know, I, I had written, you know, a few hundred thousand words, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, about Miracle Mile. He's like, why? Like, well, I told him why. And then he said, I th- you know, l- l- let me look at it. I was like, absolutely not. But yes, okay. <laughs> because, you know, I, I, I love Bill. He's like, you know, the Wonder Boys for me. I love him more than most of my family. And so I, I gave it to him and he's like, you have a book and let me be your editor. So again, Wonder oh, Boys with that connection. That's and stuff. wonderful. So, so he edited it for me and that's the form that you see there. But, you know, most of my writing, even the stuff that I pitch and I, perversely, I never intend them to be for an audience. Uh, and yeah. when they are read, when they are read, it seems like a terrible violation in a way. It's <laughs> like, I, like you, yeah, yeah. You read my diary. You yeah. read. You you listened in on my therapy session. I um, know. I'm just here crying about not you know about Asian representation. I didn't mean for you to have to listen to it. And so, 
adaptation again, <laughs> you know, yes. uh, and Charlie Kaufman mm-hmm. uh, again, in a more general sense, really, really gets it. And, and, you know, to your point about the performances, Meryl Streep is great in this, but I really, really love Nicolas Cage. Um, yeah. And he's again, branded unfairly, I think uh, as just sort of a weird guy, uh, but yep. he's done some really good work. This and leaving Las Vegas, I think are the ones that I sort of put up there and say, look at him as a person, as a very kind of like broken person and not, yep not freaky mm-hmm. just well freaky but not in the way that you think of nicholas cage um yeah, yeah. not in snake eyes when he's, you know <laughs> cheering on somebody yeah right. or or face off which are just face you off. know they're fun movies but right. yes it's good to see these different sides of nicholas cage indeed indeed yeah. and, and and no 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 facebook aspersion i know we both love face uh, uh face off rather uh, yeah i know we both love that oh but, not at yeah, all yeah <laughs> Yes. Well, the final film we chose is the last feature film made by legendary New Zealand writer-director Jane Campion. I'm hoping she makes another one soon. Uh, It's 2009's lushly romantic Bright Star, inspired by the 1997 Andrew Motion biography of John Keats. The film chronicles the last three years of the life of the romantic English poet, including his close friendship with Charles Armitage Brown, played by Paul Schneider, and focusing on his romance with Abby Cornish's Fanny Braun. Ben Wisha makes a remarkable John Keats. And as Paddington fans know, his voice is enough to give you goosebumps, especially when he's reading the poetry of John Keats. And it's a beautiful film that ranks right alongside Jane Campion's best. Speaking of Campion's best, actress Carrie Fox plays Fanny Braun's widowed mother. And when she was younger, she played the writer Janet Frame in Campion's 1990 film An Angel at My Table, which was another movie you suggested for today as well. It's been years since I've seen that film, so I do need to revisit it. But I was very eager to talk about this one, which doesn't get mentioned as one of Campion's great works. Save for, of course, by our mutual friend, Mariah E. Gates, who's a noted Bright Star super fan. So, Walter, how did you first respond to Jane Campion's movie? And now that some time has passed, where do you think it stands in comparison to her most famous works? I love Mariah, by the way. Hey, Mariah. Um, yes. Oh, she's a doll. Yes. <laughs> well, my 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 training is in British romanticism. That's what I went to grad school for. And is it really wow? Uh, yeah, and and you know it's very very specific. It's like six poets essentially between the period of seventeen eighty nine and eighteen thirty two. And so, you know, Keats of course is one of them. Um, you know, sort of the middle one I think of 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 them, only because he uh, he died very young. Of course, he was a medical student. He knew that he was dying which I think it infuses the poems of his last couple of years with this unbelievable sense of melancholy. My f- favorite poem of all time is probably Wordsworth's um, Tintern Abbey, but a, a you know, second favorite perhaps if we're ranking them is, is uh, John Keats's to autumn. He, you know, which begins uh, with a season of mists and dry tranquility. It's uh, if you're a Sandman fan, the Neil, the Neil Gaiman Sandman, he, he titled the whole run of his, comic uh, season of mists but keats is uh was for me always this sort of romantic touchstone his letters that he wrote to fanny braun are, are to me the pinnacle of human expression in terms in the western world anyway in terms of 
expressing helpless, devoted love. One of his most mm-hmm. famous letters to Fanny during this time talks about how he was always suspicious of religion, but he's suspicious no longer, you know, yeah. about how people could die of uh, die for their religion. He's like, but I could. My religion is love. I could die for you, Fanny. I could no, die for it's you. beautiful. Yeah. Oh, my God. And um, Bright Star gets it. And in terms of Campion, she gets it too. She as a as a director of writers is 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 again hyperbolic probably mm-hmm. unparalleled uh, you know Kaufman is a writer of writers unparalleled Campion is a director of writers uh, unparalleled her mm-hmm. angel at my table is extraordinary sweetie is extraordinary you know i love in the cut which yes. uh, you know the excellent film. film is which is also about the rapture of language yeah i, I yep. think you know based on a susanna more novel but i think more to 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 the extent that both of those works susanna moore's book and and also the film are based on v- v- virginia wolf and this rapture of language this idea the meg ryan character is an english teacher she rides the subway and you can hear her reading, you know, Pablo Neruda and, and Lorca, you know, that, 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 that sort of literacy project that New York public services was doing for a while, putting little snippets of poetry in the subways. And, you know, the whole film is suffused with how language produces ecstasy and in mm-hmm. the physical sexual sense, but also, you know, a really sexy movie, but also yeah. in, in, in the r- religious sense, the, the Latin ecstasis out of body um, experience that writing, good writing can provide for people. Mm-hmm. Campion gets it in an extraordinary way, extraordinary way. The piano, not with writing, but with music, same. Yep. She gets it. She gets yeah. it. She gets it. How this is an expression of all of us. And, you know, with, you mentioned the very beginning, another thing that um, Guillermo del Toro said on our talk when we when we did that for a talk for, for for the library, he came on to do Spirit of the Beehive, the Victor Irisi film, and he said that all art, all great art, aspires to music. Um, and for me, it's like yeah, and poetry. The, the, yeah. Those are the two highest arts of the seven arts, I think, where you get closest to the sublime, where you cannot articulate anymore what it is with other art that those those arts provide. Um, and what Campion does with Bright, Bright Star is she not only adapts Keats in, in the memoirs, uh, you know, in the le- in bronze letters, is she understands them. She interprets them. I think mm-hmm. the Coen brothers are underestimated as literary critics. When they make a movie like No Country for Old Men or True Grit, you know, they're, they're, they're making a movie not just of that book, True Grit. They're making a movie of all of, 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 of Charles Portis's work. Um, when they're making, uh, you, you know, O Brother Where Art Thou, and they say that it's based on the Odyssey, they're actually understanding that the Odyssey was a collection of regional folk stories. Mm-hmm. They are extraordinary literary critics. And I think Campion is an extraordinary literary critic of writers and their processes. And the way that language is um, a rapture, uh, is a seduction, is a physical, palpable, passionate thing. And Bright Star, when, you know, Abby Cornish as Fanny is reading some of those letters lying on her bed with butterflies flying around mm-hmm. the room and the curtain blowing in on her and, or her sitting in the middle of a field of, of purple flowers. And it's, uh, and the wind sort of moves everyone in the same sort of sympathetic motion as she's reading these things and swooning and being moved to these currents mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it sort of pulls together all these movies that we've been talking about today. You know, the, you know, with uh, Bob Howard standing in the middle of a field with a stick, 
reciting Conan and Conan the Samaritan. <laughs> you know, but he 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 screams his work throatily. You know, the Whitman's barbaric yap and um, this process, this physical process of creation is expulsive, explosive. You know, and uh, another great product of Romanticism is Frankenstein, which is you know, of oh, yeah. a woman writing about the unnaturalness of male creation. But here we have, you know, this unnaturalness of male creation coming out in poetry and art and the, this urge to create that is denied men as a biological right is given back to us as sort of a uh, half measure for sure, but all that we have. And occasionally I think a movie like Bright Star um, nails it. And of mm-hmm. course it takes Jane Campion to nail it. Yeah. Well, you were mentioning the two highest arts were probably poetry and music, and I couldn't agree more. And Jean Campion does that better than anyone, because to me, poetry and music, one of the reasons why they probably are is it's a feeling. It's a heartbeat. It's something that goes beyond words, goes beyond sound. It's a feeling. And Campion's films are sensual because they emphasize what it feels like to be in love or what it feels like to be a woman. I kind of see Sofia Coppola's works like that as well. It's the feeling, like there's the line at the beginning of Virgin Suicides, like, doctor, you don't know what it's like to be a girl. And I think these movies really articulate that. And it's interesting that this time it's about John Keats, but it He's almost a secondary character here because it seems to be more preoccupied with Fanny Braun. And I feel like her movies, characters are always looking for that artistic output. I was so glad to hear you bring up the piano because, I mean, that's my favorite Jane Campion film. But even something like Holy Smoke, which is flawed, but I still really like it. It's a woman looking for something and she found it in this guru and got brainwashed. So it's like looking for meaning and needing to find that outlet that we all need. And it's kind of a recurring theme in all of Campion's work. Like in this one, you have Fanny Braun not understanding poetry and getting made fun of by uh, Paul Schneider, who's brilliant in this movie. (laughs) But um She's looking for something once again. So she is a Jane Campion protagonist. I love it. Yeah. I love that you bring up Holy Smoke. I think it's a very underestimated film. Yeah. And, and I think what, what it brings up to, you know, how can you not like something with Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel? Stop oh, it. Yes. In a room together and locked up. Come on. Um, but the, I love that you brought that up. It's a brilliant thing and a brilliant comparison to Sofia Coppola, too. That the, the real danger that women face, I think, is that so, so often the rapture that they're sort of drawn in on with art is created by men. And mm-hmm. so there's like this sort of dialogue that we must have with this work. I, I got death threats after my review for the hours that came out. Really? When I was talking. Are you yeah, yeah, it was just it was stupid. You know, you know how people are. But you know, one of the things was that that I kept thinking of when I was reading this is you know, a couple of women, you know, threatening my life. Um, not for the first time, yeah. <laughs> or the last. But uh, you know, what I was thinking about as I was reading, it, I was like, you know, this is a book, uh, this is a movie directed by a man with a screenplay by a man based on a book written by a man talking about women's troubles. Why are you defending it like this? And that, that's what I thought about with Holy Smoke as well, which is sort of about that. You know, you get drawn into this sort of, uh, you know, a circle by, by a charismatic man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the process in her films of these women coming out of these 
sways, you know, yeah. these magics that are woven by our culture because because of the way our culture is. Yep. The choice that you have is to watch a lot of movies and read a lot of books by men. That's mm-hmm. your choice. And sometimes you get pulled into it. And sometimes those messages that are embedded in there uh, become your messages too. And now yeah. we find, you know, women sort of participating in, in their own oppression. Yeah, internally. I think Jane Campion's yeah. movies are so beautiful for me because they present a perspective that is alien to me. Uh, you yeah. know, I feel that way about certain, like, I feel, feel that way about, who was that photographer that um, did a lot of, uh, Arbus, Diane Arbus, you know, the, 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 oh, you, yeah. You're, yeah, you're presenting perspective to me that is completely scary to me, like, like, <laughs> Aunt, Aunt, or Anne Sexton, like scary because it is so defiantly F- Fiona Apple. It is so defiantly yes. not me yeah, and not my experience and not my <laughs> lived experience. I don't understand it, but I am listening yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm learning as fast as I can. And, you know, to your point about Bright Star being more about Fanny than it is, yes, it is about being pulled into this sway and pulled mm-hmm. into this romance and the ways that she defines herself as an individual despite it, just like in my brilliant career. You know, who are these people despite it? You know, she's yes. a designer. She she has her creative outlet. She has that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, 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 but she can hear, you know, the music, the sort of, caverns measureless to man you know these echoes that are there she gets it she gets it and Kean campion gets it yes oh god she gets it and you know he, 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 you know sweetie is another example uh, in the cut i think actually my my favorite jane campion might be in the cut it but, is so you, you good know, yeah oh my god. but it's in the same conversation for me as bright star as as the piano obviously mm-hmm. and, you know even angel on my table is really remarkable she does have a new movie coming out it's based on a book called uh, power of the dog um, oh okay yeah benedict cumberbatch i think is in it um, i completely missed that oh i'm looking forward yeah, to that i think this year or would be this Ooh, year if the cool. open, hopefully you know and she did that tv series top of the lake which is pretty yes interesting yeah in, in, in between but mm-hmm. you know again like her and, and also um claire denis another uh director who makes stuff that i just don't it's a total that's alien to me a lot of it <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> But but there's so much value. In yeah. Talk about different perspectives. My God, yes. And mm-hmm. Sofia Coppola gets such a bad rap. But who else gets to have this level of of support to tell her auteur story over and over again? Her story is com- completely compelling to me. Yeah. Um, I love all of her movies. I, you know, my mm-hmm. favorite of hers is probably somewhere. Oh, gorgeous film. That became my new favorite, actually, because I did a whole podcast on it with uh, Roxana Haddadi. And so we did all of the Sophia movies and watching them again. I mean, Lost in Translation, I should say, is my favorite, but Somewhere is probably the best of the films. I just. Oh, my God. It's. Yes. Oh, my God. It's good. And Stephen Dorff is so good. Oh, God. I know. I never would have. Like when I heard he was involved, I guess I underestimated him completely. Yeah. He's a guy that I really believe um, we put on the wrong train at some point. You know, did he need a different agent? Did he need a different, was the timing? What was it? He just got on the wrong train. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a guy, I always like him when I see him. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love him in Blade, obviously, obviously, right? Yeah. But, but you know, I even like you know some of his, his, his 
his lesser known pictures. I'm trying to remember. I mean, he was in I shot one, Andy Warhol, right? Which is pretty well known, but Oh yeah. yeah. The, there was one where he plays like a television executive or something. And he's, he's like having like a, a entropy. It's called okay. entropy. You know, the, 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 these, these little weird, Movies and the only reason I watched Entropy was because it's directed by Phil Joanna, who, you know, did did uh, State of Grace and stuff, and yeah, uh, but but yeah, and Three O'clock High, which I, I loved, great Tangerine Dream score. But Stephen Dorff is someone who's always good, always always good. If you haven't seen Entropy, I recommend it. Kelly McDonald is in it too, um, but uh, yeah, he's so good yeah. in somewhere. And Sofia Coppola is a real live voice. And we complain so much about cookie cutter this and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whenever Sophie Coppola, may, may, Coppola makes a movie, the people who should be championing her the most often say nepotism and rich girl problems. Yeah. And all that. Look, you know, I mean, it was <laughs> rich guy problems. You know, people have, you know, the things that they're making. And honestly, honestly, and here I am stepping in a bear trap. I don't want a woman with Sofia Coppola's background writing a slave narrative. I don't want no. her writing an LGBTQ film. I don't no. I don't want her to do those things. Yeah. I don't want her to, I don't want her to make Minari. I'm very 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 happy with her making on the rocks. Yes. Oh, that's an excellent point. It's total yeah. to me. Yeah. And she she brought that up when it came to uh the beguiled. Like she didn't want to tell somebody or put like her words in someone's mouth and I mean there's some issues there. It is the civil war and she could have said it at a different time or that kind of thing. But I, I do respect that she is telling yes. her story and I there feel so like many issues, but yes, yeah, I'm so grateful that she didn't do it. Yes. It's kind of damned if you do damned, if you don't. And one thing I always kind of test people when they're like, Oh, all she does is make movies about rich wasps or white people. And then I say, okay, do you like, you know, I ask them about other movies and I'll say like, um, you know, do you like Wes Anderson or um, Whit Stillman? And they're like, oh, I love Whit Stillman. And it's like, well, it's, yeah. So I find Whit that Stillman. a little interesting. Yeah. I adore Whit Stillman, but come on. I do too. I do. You know, come on. Yeah. He's not making Django Unchained, right? I mean, yes. there's, there's, Yes, and there's yeah. such a like a level of hypocrisy there, where you know you can even name like movies that 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 sort of or like Amistad or something that ostensibly deal with people like stepping outside their lanes. Like, do you like that? Well, I do. I you know, it's like, why? Yep. It's, it's a, kind of a disaster, and, and or, or the or the Green Mile, or you know. Oh God, Green that Book. one bothered me. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's horrible. You know the super duper magic Negro thing that Spike Lee came out to talk about around that mm-hmm. film. It's like. Yeah, at some point you just got to stop doing Green Book. You got to stop getting the guy who did Dumb and Dumber to do Green Book. There, there's a point at which you say, um, "Yeah." Uh, anyway, we're very far, far afield from Bright Star at this point. But, but yeah, I love that you <laughs> Sophia Coppola in regards to Jane Campion and um, what, 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 what Campion understands about John Keats is is more valuable i think than in like six years of of higher education that i'm still paying off um <laughs> that, that i got about romanticism because she hears it yeah she hears it and i'm not sure you know that the uh the the graduate advisor that i was talking about brad much is his name he's written some good books about coleridge he used to always ask after we'd read a poem he would say okay where does this poem breathe and it's a very grady trip Ooh, sort of that's a beautiful right yeah yeah, and it's it's something that I think about too when I watch film and when I'm sitting down to write something about some a, a work. Because I want to identify if the film has a pulse, and I want to identify if the patient is still alive, and I want to know where at the point of our relationship the 
began to breathe for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's like, it's Campion gets it. She understands where these writers and these poets and these works breathe. Mm-hmm. And so it's only with that kind of wisdom that you find a scene where there's a piano on a beach and a woman who's lost a hand and yes. a swoon. Yeah. It's only be, it's only when someone hears that, which is, you know, you, you can't articulate it. You, you hear, but you hear it and you know it and it's changed mm-hmm. your brain chemistry and you're able to express that on screen is Jane Campion's one of our great filmmakers and, 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 you know, along with Claire Denis and some of these other people we've mentioned today. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I love that this film not only chronologically wraps up our talk, but uh, encapsulates so many of the things that we've tried to hit on in terms of, yes. I think, you know, why these movies so speak to us in ways that are difficult to articulate. And e- even as I'm talking about this, I'm having a hard time saying, like, I'm a writer, I'm a writer. Like, you know, I, I don't think of myself that way, but just because I know I who, what I writers mean, are. Yeah. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, you know, because I don't yeah. want people to listen to those. Like, oh, who do they think they are? Yes. That's no Hemingway. <laughs> you know, I know that. I know. Yeah. I don't pretend like, you know, that, that I create great art. But what I am is compelled and pulled by the same forces that these characters seem to be compelled and forced by. And, you know, wh- whatever the quality of my output is in comparison, you know, I don't pretend. But um, it speaks dearly to me, the sense of damage and isolation and trauma that has resulted in my need to find a refuge behind the cloud of words to mm-hmm. articulate and express myself. I'm much more articulate about my affections and my desires and stuff than I am verbally to my family. You know, it's like, you know, I, I've made it a point to tell my kids I love them every day because I was afraid I wasn't yeah. going to be able to. But with my wife, I tell her that I love her maybe once a quarter, and that's hard mm. because not because I don't, but because I do a lot, oh. and it's it's scary because I've been rejected a lot by my my parents or whatever. Mm. You know, my parents stopped telling me that they loved me when I was nine. You know, and so oh, wow. the, the, so that's it's scary for me to put myself out there. And I'm afraid there will be a day when I say that to her and she doesn't reciprocate. Mm. Even now, 23 years later or whatever, oh. even now with a great marriage and I'm very happy and all, ever, all those things. It's really scary, but I can write it. I can write it. Yeah. And what is it? And I think these movies come the closest and, and some others that we've mentioned come the closest to being able to express why, why that is. Yes, you need that outlet. It's only when I'm writing that I realize I make sense of what I'm feeling. I feel like these movies capture that very well. Well, I want to thank you so much. Are there any others you would like to give just a shout out to films about writers that you want to recommend before we wrap it up? Oh, man, just everything that Jane Campion has ever done. Yeah. (laughs) Start there. You got a good good place to start, I think. You know, I mean... What was her first movie, Sweetie? Was that her very first movie? I, I don't think remember. that might have been her first. Yeah. Or was it Two Friends? Something like that. Yeah, Two Friends on TV. You're right, you're right. And then Sweetie, and then mm-hmm. Angel on My Table, Portrait of a Lady. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, uh, aside from The Innocence, maybe the best adaptation of a Henry James ever. Um, piano, Holy Smoke, even. In, in the Cut. Mm-hmm. Gosh. I don't know. Yeah, those. Um, start there. Every Charlie Kaufman, you must do that. Um, yeah. Yeah, All there's right. a lot. Or and, and if we talk about Ben Wishaw, you, everyone should see Perfume. If they yes, it. there you go. You know, talk about adaptations that are awesome. Perfect. And read a lot of pulp. 
Read yeah. pulp. Oh my yeah. gosh. The you get precision. smarter when you read pulp, not dumber. Yes. You get so much yes. smarter when you do that. If I ever become wealthy, fabulously wealthy, I'm going to collect every copy of Weird Tales. Uh, there's so <laughs> much gold in there. Uh, it's a deep well. Perfect. Well, again, I want to thank you so much, Walter. This was really enjoyable. I took up your entire afternoon, so I do apologize <laughs> for that. But this was I can't think of, of a better way to spend it than with you. Thank you for having me, Jen. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. <laughs>